Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. And yes, I know we're at the same background, but that's because the table for podcasting has not arrived. It may not come until the 22nd. So hold on to your horses. We're just not there yet. But we did get new mic stands, which I know probably doesn't excite you, but it very much excites me because those other huge arms made it really hard for us to find a table that we could like record at because it has to clip on and has to have distance to come to you. Anyway, that's too much production talk. I'm done. We're moving on. Next thing. Um, But how are you doing? Just checking in. How are things? I finally feel a little more settled. I probably said that last week, but we we last week when I recorded this, I think we'd finished unpacking our boxes, but now things are trying, like starting to take shape, you know, where you put stuff away in the places where you really want them to be. Um, we still haven't like gotten in like all of our furniture, obviously, like I said, the table for the podcast thing hasn't arrived and neither have our bar bar stools for like the little Island thing off of our uh, kitchen and our new bed. But our mattress showed up. Things are showing up. You guys, things are happening. I'm excited, but I need to, yeah, kind of get back in the swing of things, have like a regular week of work. Sounds silly, but I'm kind of excited about it because everything's just felt kind of in flux or in, in limbo. And so it's nice to be settled, but again, how are you? Do you feel settled? Do you feel unsettled? Tell me why, what's going on? How you doing? We have 11 questions today, mainly because the last, well, the last two, like always, um, not always, but most of the time, uh, are just random selections of questions from the community tab on my podcast channel, which is called Opinions That Don't Matter. So you go onto YouTube and you search Opinions That Don't Matter and you click on that channel. In the community tab on Sunday mornings, I ask you for your questions. That's where I get these. And I do, I pick the first eight from the most thumbs up ones. So if you like a question, you're like, I want to know the answer to that. Give it a thumbs up. And then I select those. And then the last two, but today we have three, are just random. And that means they don't have to have a certain number of thumbs up. I just scroll and stop and then pick one. But today um, I did an extra because when I was picking one, the one below it, I was like, oh, that's interesting too. I'll pick that one too. And so that's just how it is. So we have 11 today. So without further ado, let's jump into them. Now, question number one says, Katie, me and my boyfriend have been together for two and a half years. Overall, our relationship has been great. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have depression. When we first started dating, my depression almost completely went away. I think because of the adrenaline rush um, or a new relationship. Yes, agreed. My depression has come back really strong recently. It causes me to be very irritable and easily frustrated. Lately, I've been feeling this way with my boyfriend and it's making me feel really guilty. A lot of the things he does make me really irritated and I easily snap, even if later I realize that they weren't that big of a deal. This has caused a lot of arguments and a shift in our relationship where I don't feel as close to him anymore. I still love him, but I always wonder if we're drifting apart and not meant to be together or if it's just the honeymoon phase is over and my depression is making it worse. How can I tell the difference? Okay, a couple of things. Everybody feels good at the beginning of a relationship. You get kind of that like Twitter patient, like butterflies in the stomach. Everything is new and exciting. Yay. We all love that. And that it is like a honeymoon phase. There's a reason they call it the honeymoon phase. There is a phase of that. But for two and a half years, you've been good. And now recently your depression's come back really strong lately. Unless you've seen a shift in your boyfriend where he's treating you differently, interacting with you differently, maybe being more rude or uh, overwhelming or something. I don't know. Unless you 
can identify a shift in him or the way that he interacts with you. I just based on this question, believe that it's your depression because depression uh, is a lot of people, maybe not people who don't have depression, maybe don't know this, but depression isn't just, I feel sad and shitty. Depression is also everything that people do annoys me. And I kind of want to tear my skin off and I feel super uncomfortable and agitated all the time. There's irritability is a huge component of depression. People don't talk about enough. And I honestly think that that type of depression is usually like anxiety and depression getting together and happening at the same time. It's horrible and it's super uncomfortable. And I get the feeling that maybe what's happening here. So my advice for you is to obviously get in therapy if you're not already. And potentially because it's getting so bad and affecting your relationship, which I'd assume is important to you. You said you still love him. So we should try to figure this out. Potentially try medication. Um, medication can obviously one of the uh, common side effects of an SSRI or SNRI, otherwise known as an antidepressant, is sexual side effects. So keep that in mind and make sure that, you know, if that's a concern of yours, that you communicate that to your psychiatrist or medical doctor that you're seeing to get the prescription. But I think that that might be our best idea or thing to do moving forward because it's making things hard. Like all these arguments and the feeling like you're quick to snap and you, it, you realize later it wasn't that big of a deal. We're going to need to somehow, you know, figure out the depression component and how we can maybe make it better. Now there are things that you can do but it just depends. Again, medications there. If any of you are like, oh, I can't believe she even mentioned medication. That's so rude or so terrible or whatever. Medication has its purpose. It has a reason for existing. And that reason is that if we can't even engage in therapy or try behavioral changes or, or different tools or techniques, because we just feel so many of the symptoms of whatever mental illness we're struggling with. And so medication gets your head above water enough that you can try out some of the tools and things to kind of alleviate these depressive, irritable symptoms. Okay. And so another thing, like just as a, a, some advice on things, I know this isn't really the question, but just to give some tips and tools and things that maybe can help in the moment. The first is looking back at some of those arguments you've had that you later than realized it really wasn't that big of a deal. Can we look at that and see maybe what led up to it? Maybe it's how our day went leading up, or maybe the conversation we were having with ourselves leading up to that, or was it the fact that we were tired? Was it later in the day? Like, give me more information. Be curious about that. Be a detective. Tell me all the stuff you have or all the information you can find about those arguments that you ended up feeling guilty about later and see if we can figure out what's going on for us, because that will help us know if maybe one tool is managing our self-talk and not letting negative thoughts like live in our head rent-free, like challenging them a little bit, maybe using some bridge statements, which means it's not necessarily a positive thought, but it's like building toward that. It's, you know, maybe things aren't as shitty as I think they are, right? So we can use some of that if we think that it's our thoughts that led to that. Or if it's the fact that we're tired, maybe, you know, we go to bed earlier or we let him know that we're tired or maybe it's just we feel really impulsive and upset and maybe we need to use some like walk away uh, kind of uh, what would I call it? It's not really back burner, but it's almost like opposite action where we want to fight, but we we take a breath. We tell our boyfriend, you know, I love you. I'm just really upset today because I'm not feeling well. I'm going to walk away for a minute to cool down. I don't want to fight with you. You haven't done anything wrong. You know, something like that. 
So there's a bunch of different things that we can do, but the one, okay. So those are some behavioral advice tools, things maybe a therapist could offer to you once, you know, we have medication on board if needed so that we can do those things. But the one piece of advice that I do have that I would encourage you to do right now is to talk to your boyfriend about this and be honest, telling him, Hey, you know, exactly like you told me, I feel like I'm fighting with you. I know that you haven't done anything wrong. I'm going to do my best to, to better manage this, know that I love you, but I, I don't want to drift apart because of this. It's, I, I'm depressed and I'm struggling. You know, whatever we want to tell him about our mental illness, the more we can share, the better, because A, we don't want him to think it's anything he's done. B, we don't want him to like start getting, you know, getting angry at us and maybe being resentful or more upset about the argument. You know, we want to build the relationship, not damage it. And so we have to communicate. We have to tell him. And we also have to be open to hearing him tell us how it's making him feel without fighting back or dying in a shame of spiral or a shame spiral. So at least, you know, being open to having those conversations, I think would really, really help. Cool. You got this. You can get through this. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. And that question says, hi, Katie, I just finished undergrad this semester and I will be starting grad school this in the fall. Throughout undergrad, I have struggled to keep up with school because of my mental health. I have moderate depression and anxiety. My symptoms are manageable for the most part, but I think most of my struggle comes from feeling like I never have a break. Oh, burnout. Between school and work, I hardly have any free time. And the small amounts of free time that I do have, I feel so overworked that I just want to lounge around. Of course you do. You're burnt out. This causes none of my other errands or chores to get done. And I always feel behind. I'm concerned that if I continue this way that I and can't get control over my problems, I will not be successful in grad school. I really want to take advantage of this time this summer to quote unquote reset. What can I do this summer in general to feel better? This is a great question. Now, working full-time and going to school full-time or, or what, even if it's not full-time, you're doing too much. And I know, trust me, I worked throughout school, undergrad and grad, and I feel you on the, the need to make money and the need to go to school and the need to do everything. But my advice to you is to, we'll get into summer, but next year, my advice to you is to either lessen your work hours or your school hours or both. Like there's nothing wrong with not taking one class in a semester. I know grad school might not be as flexible. Like mine was not, it was just a program and I had to take X number of courses, you know, but I did have friends that went to the like satellite campuses for Pepperdine's graduate program and they did it more at their own pace, like one or two classes at a time. And that may be better for you. No one says you have to finish school at a certain amount of time. I know you probably feel pressure. I felt it too. But no one says you have to do that. No one says that it, it has to be completed right away. It's better for you to complete it and feel okay than to go through the program, you know, the quote unquote way you feel like you need to and feel like shit at the end and not even be able to do anything because you're so burnt out. And we don't want to be burnt out before we even start our career, right? So lesson something, something's got to give. The amount of work that you're having to do is making you have no time to, to, to I don't know, breathe right? And so let, uh, give, give something up a little bit and see what, how that feels, because I think that that's going to be your way out. But when it comes to this summer, when you don't have school, I would encourage you 
to consider some of the things that make you feel good. that are like breath in. I've talked about this. I think it's in relation to something Brené Brown wrote or said, or maybe it was somebody else, but it was like, oh no, it's the artist's way. Sorry, I'm getting all of my things confused where they talk about the importance of breath in, meaning that when we do things for work or for school, it's a breath out. When I give to people, myself, even friends or family, anybody, even all of you out there that I communicate with all the time, when I tell, when I'm talking to other people and offering like therapeutic advice, it's breath out. It's a lot of energy out, right? And that's fine. As long as I'm making time for the breath in, for the energy in, right? If we think about breath out, if we just keep breathing out, we're going to pass out because we're not going to have enough oxygen or our body is going to force an inhale. So either way, something bad, you know, it's like our body's not going to allow this to continue to happen. We get too tired. We get too burnt out. We get irritable. We're overwhelmed. Other things start to go and something's got to give. Right. And so this summer, find those breath in things like for me, um, it's going out with friends. I mean, I don't know if COVID restrictions are lessening where you are, but if you can safely see a close friend and like catch up with them, have, you know, food and drinks or play a game or something with them. Let's make time for that. That stuff is important. I know it seems like play and it's not productive. I'm doing air quotes. If you're just listening, that it's not productive, but I mean, fuck productivity. Being productive doesn't mean that we feel good or that things are going to be okay. Productive is just like we're in this hamster wheel and it's never enough. And so it's really important that instead of having to feel productive, we put this down as homework where it's like see a friend and have good conversation for at least an hour. Play a game with someone I care about that's just for fun. Take a day off. Those are the to-dos that I want on your list this summer. So find some of those breath in things and put those on your list because throughout life, we're going to come in contact with situations like this where we have so much that's being asked of us and we're going to do all these different things and we just can't make the time for it, right? Or we can't make time for ourselves then. It eats up all our time so we don't have any free time and, and we feel that we feel overwhelmed again and we feel burnt out. Um, and if you don't know burnout, I did a whole series on burnout. So I'm kind of burnt out from burnout. (laughs) Let's be honest. But burnout occurs when the reward for what we do isn't at least commensurate with the effort we put in. Meaning that if the the reward cannot just be financial, that's never enough for people. FYI. It's usually some emotional component. Like I feel fulfilled or I feel like I'm helping people in some way, right? It has to at least be equal with the effort. And right now you're putting a shitload of effort and you don't necessarily feel that much reward and so we're, we're feeling burnt. Um, but yeah, this summer, let's make time for the breath in and let's figure out, take this downtime to assess what would work for us going forward. Because like you said, you don't want to, you know, go into graduate school and not be successful there. Okay. So how can we set ourselves up for success? And this is with our own measurements. These are with our own ideas of what breaks we need. Cause some people like I have friends, especially in YouTube space are like workhorses. You guys, they work all the time. Like my friend, Rebecca, she's a workaholic. I don't know how she does it. I can't do it. So I don't want to compare my effort and productivity to hers because we're not the same. Also what we do is very different. Right. And so comparing yourself to you, to you yesterday, or especially since you're just out of school or about to be out of school, 
what things could we change? What could give? What could we take off of our to-do list so that we feel like we do have free time? Because I also want you to know that free time or like making some self-care time for yourself is not tasks. That's not errands or chores. That's not free time. That's actually more work. That's just home work instead of work work. Does that make sense? So make sure you're still leaving time for you to do the things you want to do. And that might mean that you don't work on Sundays at all, or you take off one evening a week and a day, you know, we need breaks. And so let's start preparing for the future and for next semester, next year of schooling so that we can, again, set ourselves up for success. I know it seems hard and you're like, I don't have any time to give. There's always time. And if we don't make time to take care of ourselves, our body will force it either through illness or, I mean, exhaustion, I guess I would like count as illness, but through our mental health getting worse. There's a lot of ways that it will show itself. And we want to make sure that we don't force that, that we allow ourselves to take breaks because we're not robots. You know, I can't work every day. You can't either. It gets exhausting and we need, we need vacation time. We need long weekends. We need breaks. So give yourself permission to take a break. Okay, let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, recently I have begun to notice that my parents are more concerned about my sister's mental health than mine. For example, when she is acting even the slightest bit different from normal, they will ask her if she's okay and be worried about her. However, when I act differently or even have been visibly crying, I don't get asked if I'm okay or anything. I always feel like I can't tell them anything because they're so worried about her, even though I'm really struggling with self-harm and other mental health issues. It's really hard to see them so worried about her and them not even noticing that I'm struggling. Same goes for our physical health. For instance, one week I might be sick and I let my parents know, but they just don't do anything about it. And then next week she has the same problem, but they instantly take her to the doctor, et cetera. I guess I just want them to realize that I'm struggling, but I just don't know how to do that without straight up telling them any tips. I mean, straight up telling them was going to be my advice. (laughs) It was funny when I read this question, I was like, that's a, that's what I was going to say to do. Um, I'm not, I'm not making excuses for your parents because it's pretty shitty what's happening, but I will tell you that like, I even went through something similar when I was growing up because my brother had a cleft lip and palate when he was born and he had to have all these surgeries when he was little. Now I'm almost, I'm like three and a half, almost four years younger than my brother, but he was still going through speech therapy and um, having surgeries and stuff when I was a baby. And so as I grew up, I felt like he got so much attention because he had all these appointments, right? And he had to go to a speech therapist and he was in gymnastics and he had these appointments and he was supposed to work on his coordination. There was all sorts of shit that he was doing. And I wanted more attention. I didn't feel like they paid me any attention. It was, in my case, it was because my brother had more needs and parents just tend to, you know, they might think that you're stronger than your sister or more able to manage than her, or they might feel like they've already given you support for those things. And like, you should be over it by now, right? Parents can do things for all sorts of reasons. And some of it's even unconscious. Like when I was a kid and I remember talking to my mom about this and being so sad and I was like, I want, I need attention too. You know, he always gets the attention and she had no idea that that was what was happening. Right. And so I'm putting it out there to say that maybe they just think that she needs more support. Okay. But we cannot help people realize something without telling them no one can read your mind. 
I know we wish people could. Well, but the thing is, if you think about it, you really don't wish people could. You wish they could, you know, selectively read your mind only when you allow it. Like, that's not going to work. I'm sorry. I know we think through passive aggressive behavior or uh, acting out or dramatizing things that someone's going to pay attention or notice. We cannot make them understand. They might notice us, but they might think, oh, she's just being dramatic because we are, right? I know it's hard. I know this is kind of tough love, Katie, but I'm just there to tell you that no matter how good of an actress we are, or actor we are, they're not going to catch our drift. They're not going to know what we're, how we're feeling because we're not telling them. Also, there's no like daytime Emmy for that. So, you know, time to hang it up. We're going to try communication. So what I would encourage you to try to do is to tell your parents about this. And the way that I would encourage you to tell them, first of all, is to write it down and practice ahead of time, the points you want to get across and keep it short and sweet. Everyone's attention spans are really short. So please do not go into like a whole diatribe about all of it. Let's keep it to like three to five bullet points. And the bullet points should be something to the effect of, hey, mom and dad, I've noticed that you pay more attention to my sister, you know, insert name there. Like, let's say her name is uh, Susie. You pay more attention to my sister Susie than you do me. And lately I've been noticing when it comes to mental health or physical health, you check in on her and that leaves me feeling not as cared for. Okay, so those are, those are our points. That's all we got. Now, the last point should always be when it comes to parents, what we're asking of them. So what we're asking of them, so then it'd be, you know, if you're able, it would make me feel good if you could at least acknowledge when I'm having a tough time because I need the support too. Boom. That's our conversation. That's all we're going to say. Then we give our parents some time to digest it. Parents don't always react well, but I find that sometimes if we give them time and we don't fight back, you could even after saying that say, I know that might be a lot to take in. I'll leave you guys just to think about it, but that's just really been hurting me lately. Okay. We walk away. We give them some time. Usually parents will think about it, talk amongst themselves about it. I didn't realize we were doing that. Oh my God. Let, you know, let's, we're hoping for the best. And then they'll come to you and say, I'm so sorry, we didn't realize we were doing it, but we will try our best to, to, you know, give you more attention. If you maybe, you know, maybe then they haven't asked, like, could you communicate that to us a little more clearly? Because we had no idea, right? We might not even know. Parents can be very aloof and not realize it. Now, that's in a perfect world, but I'm just giving you a way to communicate to them because you're going to have to straight up tell them. And I know we don't want to. I know it was like, oh, it makes us more vulnerable. And what if they don't respond the proper way? That's why we prepare ahead of time. If you have a therapist, then in therapy, you can role play this out and imagine what they would say in return. Like how, how do your parents usually respond when you talk to them about things? We usually know enough about our parents to kind of know, oh, dad will like, yeah, 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 he'll space out or he won't even know what to say. He'll just get quiet and then leave or, you know, we can figure, or maybe they'll cry or over talk or start to shout. We can play that out and do our best to prepare ahead for any of their questions or concerns so that we address them in those three to five bullet points. Yes, I know this is hard, but trust me when I tell you this is just great practice for life because no one can read our minds. And in your future relationships, when you're upset, like when I get upset with Sean or I'm upset about a situation, it's best that I tell him right away versus like mistreat him and hope that he understands because it's never going to work. I know what's going to happen if I start acting like rudely. He's going to say, what's wrong? What happened? Did I do something? And the answer is no, because he didn't do anything. It's just I have expectations that haven't been communicated and then I'm upset. So that's not really fair. Right? So that's my advice. I know you don't want to tell them because obviously you're like without straight up telling them. That's the only option because 
No one can read our minds and we can't make people change behavior ever. All we can do is communicate and even over communicate what we need and what we're struggling with so that they can assist us. Cool? Cool. Okay, let's move on to question number four. That question says, hey, Katie, I went to a therapist not that long ago, but I was so anxious that I really couldn't open up to her. And I just lied to her to make her think that I was doing better, even though I wasn't. From the first session, I wasn't able to hold eye contact for more than a second. After a couple appointments, I just stopped seeing her because it made me so anxious to even try and go see her. I'm now too scared to see another therapist because I'm afraid that the same thing will happen again. I'm also really struggling to even make the appointment to see her in the first place. So when I started lying to her, it just made the whole situation worse. It's very common. How do I become less anxious about sessions and even seeing a therapist again? Thank you. And there was a comment that said, I struggle with feeling terribly anxious too. I can talk around a topic and hint at what I wish I could say, often missed. But for me, I think that it stems from childhood trauma as I don't know my therapist that well and I project all of my attachment wounds onto her. In other words, I fear that if I open up, she will harm me the same way my family did. Is this possible? Yes, that's possible. But let's get into this first portion of the question. The best way to prevent ourselves from getting overly anxious about therapy is to find some tools, which I know you're like, well, God, I'm not even in therapy. That's why I need to fucking go to therapy because I got anxiety. Jesus it's like, we're caught in this cycle, right? I have a ton of videos out there, you guys, all about anxiety and some coping strategies. One that's been helping me personally and a lot of our community members over you know, 2020 through 2021 is the shakeout. Now, when we feel super anxious, a lot of it can have to do with our stress response being triggered, which is our fight, flight, freeze response. And that energy, because sometimes when we're in that stress response, we can't fight or flight. And it's out of freeze that we believe trauma is born. So if we can't move that energy through our system, it just kind of sits there and like cycles in, which can cause us to spiral into worry thoughts, aka anxiety, right? So in order to release that energy that is built up in our body, we can do a full body shake, just like a dog out of the bath from, from nose to tail. I want you to shake everything out. Yes, you'll be out of breath. I am every time. And I laugh at myself every time, but even put on some funny music, dance around like a lunatic. I don't care. Move that energy through your body. And I promise you will feel your anxiety lessen. It can also bring up a lot of things and kind of release some body memories. Sometimes I've heard that happening. Give yourself a chance to, to move through all that you're experiencing. There's that. Then there's four by four breathing. I know some people hate breathing exercises, but I'm just giving you one in case you, you know, in case it works, you breathe in for four seconds, hold it at the top for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds. And you do that cycle four times. It calms you down. It calms me down. Sometimes if I'm struggling to sleep, I'll do a shakeout and then do that breathing exercise and I'm gone. So try to find some things to help you. Another thing that can help it is journaling. Just don't worry if it makes any sense. Jot down what you're thinking and feeling really quickly into a notebook um, about what's going on and all of the stress and the worries that can help us as well. I think getting to getting you to a point where you can like make the appointment and get there, we're going to have to just like take the edge off a little bit. And some of those techniques and tools will help. There's also like progressive relaxation that can be helpful. I'm sure you can look on YouTube and just look up progressive relaxation. Um, I also, I've been working on, so I had an old anxiety workbook I did years ago and I've, uh, 
added a shit ton to that. It went from like, I don't even know, like 11 pages. It's like 68, 70 pages, something like that now. Um, and new videos and everything. So I'll have an anxiety workbook that's coming out that you can download and utilize. That's another opportunity, um, to help with this, but those taking that edge off is going to give you the best result. It's going to get you to a point where you can make a therapist, like make your appointment to see a therapist and like get there. And another great resource are friends, friends and family, anybody who can help you. If you feel safe enough to tell someone that you're doing this, let them make the call. It's okay. They can make the call. I've made calls before. It's not a big deal. If, because it's not them, they're going to be more apt to be, you know, going to, you can even put together what you want them to say so they can read it into the voicemail or put it on speaker. You know, there's ways that we can make this happen so that they, you can get that appointment made, call in some favors, have some people help you. You know, sometimes we, we just need that resource. We need that support and it's okay, you know, to call a lifeline and like, uh, like the, who wants to be a millionaire, you know, and those are what your friends and family are. They're your lifelines. So let, utilize them if you need to help you feel a little bit better. Now, the comment on this where she says, in other words, I fear if I open up, she'll harm me in the same way my family did. Is this possible? Yes, it is very possible. And I think the best way to address this is in session to let your therapist know this is going on. And my homework for you would be for you to look for ways that that this relationship is different. Because the thing about trauma and the thing about, uh, honestly, even our anxiety is that it tries to blanket everyone saying no one is safe it tries to make these blanket statements or blanket uh warnings about people like all people everybody when that's not the case sure we had some shitty people in our life that really fucked us up and we hurt still because of it and they deserve to be spit on or cut out of our lives or who knows or just processed through at least i can hear my friend alexa saying katie you're being too harsh because she's much softer than i am so Sure, there are those people, but not everybody is the same. Not everybody's that 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 person or those people. They're not, you know, your therapist is different. So let's look for ways that it's different versus allowing our anxious brain to, or our PTSD brain rather, to assume everybody's the same because that's just not the case. And I know it's hard, easier said than done, but you got this. Tell your therapist about it. Do your homework and look, be a detective, look for ways that relationship is different than the other relationships. And I promise you it'll get better. Okay, cool. Let's move on to question number five. And this question reads, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. My question is about dissociation and suicidal thoughts. I'm 26. And for the first time in my life, I've recently started talking about my experience with childhood emotional abuse. I'm so proud of you. I know how hard that is. Since I've started talking about this, I found myself randomly dissociating. Yeah, because your system gets overwhelmed. Just the other week, I had dissociated and quote unquote came back while pouring a boiling hot kettle over my hand. (gasps) Ooh, it took me a few seconds and almost the entire kettle to put the pieces together and figure, figure out where I was and what I was doing and that I needed to move my hand away from the water. I was making a hot water bottle, but completely missed the bottle apparently. Normally, when I've accidentally touched boiling water, I've been extremely fast to move away as it hurts. But as I was coming to the pain, or but as I was coming to, the pain didn't feel like that at all. Dissociation does that to us. I ended up burning my hand pretty bad. But the scary part about the whole thing was that I couldn't even feel the pain until I had the um, come back enough to realize, sorry, I lost my place. Um, I couldn't feel the pain until I'd come back enough to realize I needed to move my hand. And even then it hurt. Um, it hurt like I would have expected. 
oh, it didn't hurt like I would have expected. To my knowledge, I haven't done any other self-injuring things during a period of dissociation, but I am genuinely concerned about this at, that, at this point. I struggle with suicidal thoughts and have previously attempted to take my own life. And I guess my main concern going back to the dissociation and the kettle incident is that I get very overwhelmed with suicidal thoughts at times. My fear is that I could act on those during a dissociated state. Yes, I've had that happen in my patients before. I'm not suicidal. I just have a lot of thoughts of suicide during difficult periods in my life. From your experience, do you know if this is something that could happen? I have zero recollection of the dissociation for the most part, though sometimes I'm aware but I'm, um, and I'm here, but I can't hear, understand, or make sense of anything. I also just want to say that your video, Suicide and Honest Discussion, has been a great tool for me during the, la the past few months. I'm so glad. Everybody loves that video. Um, Maybe I should make a redo, another one. It really helps me slow down, think more logically and reach out to those closest to me during difficult times. So genuinely, thank you for everything you do and for putting this content online for free so that anyone who needs help can ask, access it. You're truly amazing. Now there was a comment and someone said, as an add-on, can dissociation become dangerous? Yes, it clearly can, as you see. I've nearly attempted suicide when I was very dissociated, not because I don't know what I'm doing, but rather everything felt pointless. I've had plenty of close calls with vehicles on the road, nearly chopping my fingers off or scalding myself in the kitchen. Dissociation is supposed to protect us, but maybe it's only putting us in harm's way. So dissociation is interesting. Let's talk a little bit about that really quickly because dissociation is a protective mechanism. But just like any unhealthy. It's an unhealthy protective mechanism because it doesn't allow us to form any new memories. It pulls us out of body or environment and doesn't allow us to be connected. So we can kind of feel like we don't even know what we're doing, right? We don't have any control over what we do. I've had a lot of patients be scared driving because they like come to while they're driving and they're like, oh my God, you could have, you know, I could have killed myself on accident, right? Or I've had patients have to pull off to the side of the road because they're afraid to keep going because they feel like kind of spacey. It can be very dangerous. It can be very scary. So this unhealthy coping skill, while in the moment in a trauma, it removes us from ourselves so that we can survive and push through. After that moment, it's actually, it's a maladaptive coping skill, meaning it's an unhealthy coping skill. It's not really helping anything our brain and body, we just don't know any other way to cope. And so that's like our knee jerk coping is like, oh, I'm out of here. Well, it pulls the ripcord like all the time. And so in order to stop that from happening, we have to find other better, healthier ways to cope. And we're gonna have to do those honestly to the point where you don't wanna do them anymore. Like you're gonna have to do them all the time because we often don't know what's causing us to dissociate. We can try to track back, but since our memory spotty, it can be hard to know when that really happened. So we're just gonna have to do some extra work to keep ourselves present, right? And that's why dissociation can become very dangerous. And I've had patients kind of come to while they're self-injuring or doing other injurious behaviors. Um, I've had patients not remember when they've gone on shopping sprees and spent thousands of dollars. Like there's so many things that we can do, like pouring a hot kettle of water over our hand and hurting ourselves really badly. Um, and so, and someone left a comment on this that I, again, I'm not, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a neurologist, but they had a bunch of issues that they had looked into to better understand their own dissociation. And so I do want to put it out there that it does behoove us if this is happening a lot and we're not really sure why, or it feels like it came out of nowhere, you know, and we're just, we're not, we don't fully understand. Um, 
like the cause or the trigger, it can help to talk to a neurologist, make sure there's nothing else that's causing this brain fog or this slowdown or this, this dissociative feeling, because there might be something there. And so it's worth getting checked out from your regular doctor, getting a full physical and seeing a neurologist just to make sure that that, you know, dissociation is what this is. It always helps to rule things out. Um, and so let me make, what is the question here? I guess, um, from your experience, how do you know if this is something that could happen? Okay. The, talking about the suicidal uh, attempt potentially or danger during dissociation. Now, because dissociation pulls us away from ourself and our environment when we feel overwhelmed or honestly feel shitty, we're, we are kind of, we're at higher risk for doing dangerous things. And so what I would encourage you to do is to find some things that bring you back or find some things that hold you there. I have a video with my friend Alexa about grounding techniques. I think I might even have done one on my own. So just hop onto YouTube and put in Katie Morton grounding techniques. But there's anything from, um, I've had patients get like uh, a little roller ball of like essential oils, strong scents, things like peppermint have always worked with my patients, cinnamon. And someone um, in our community told me that bergamot is supposed to be a grounding scent. So they like wear it you know, get a perfume that has that kind of a base layer smell to it because it helps keep us present and keep us here. So that's one. Also, you can do like the alphabet game where you look around the room and you, okay, the letter A, what can I see for A? What what has an A in it, right? Um, I'll say, I'm trying to even think I'm here. I'm looking, but I don't really see anything. Art. I have art on the wall. Art is for A. B is for bug spray. C is for cup right? Go through all the alphabet with all the things that you see in your environment that can keep you grounded. Also counting colors. How many things in the room are blue? Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I see eight things. Nine, the stand that the camera's on. And doing that brown, red, go through all, you know, as many colors as you can think of. Doing that can help keep us here. Also, some people snap rubber bands, but if we struggle with self-injury, I'm always a little, I'd like to try the other ones first. And then, you know, there's impulse logs and we can really dig into things. But for, for the time being, I feel like those types of grounding techniques could be helpful and hopefully keep you safe so that you don't end up harming yourself in a way you don't intend when dissociated. And so, um, and I don't know if it says... Yes, you started talking about it. So I would let your therapist know that your dissociation is is getting out of control and being it's scary to you. And um, we can, just like I was talking about earlier in a previous question about like being a detective and figuring out what triggered it. Like, can we track back to the last time when we poured that water over our hand? Like what led up to it? What, what pushed us over? Are there things that we could have done ahead of time, right? Because we can learn from those past experiences so that they don't happen again, but we, ha we can't just ignore them or feel shame about them. We have to dig in and be, be a detective. We're not judgmental. We're just checking the facts. We're looking to see what happens so that we can do better next time. And yeah, dissociation is supposed to be helpful and it is in some instances, but very, very quickly it becomes not so helpful. And I'm sorry, you, I'm sorry you're experiencing that, but it can be helped. It can be worked on and we can manage it so that it doesn't happen as often. Let's move into question number six. It says, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am quite a severe procrastinator and I was wondering to what extent this ties into depression and or other mental illnesses. It seems to be ingrained in my thought patterns. Like whenever I have an exam, a piece of coursework, or even an appointment, just a basic uh, task to do, I put it off, leading to a lot of guilt and constantly feeling like a failure. I feel like uh, blaming it on a mental illness isn't great as it feels like I'm just the cause of how I'm feeling. 
How much should we take responsibility for procrastinating and how do I overcome it? Now, procrastination come from a lot of different mental illnesses, depression being a huge one. And I was just reading a, um, a comment on today's video because I'm filming this on a Monday, this week's video um, from Ray, a member of our community. And he was saying how depression makes it really hard to be motivated to do anything. And then if you're trying to think of something you enjoy, depression due to anhedonia, which is a, a huge symptom of depression, nothing's enjoyable anymore. So it's like, I don't have the motivation. I don't enjoy it. How am I supposed to do anything? Right. So depression can definitely cause procrastination because as we all know, even getting out of bed sometimes when we're depressed just feels like the ultimate effort. Um, and also ADHD can cause procrastination. If you don't know, an ADHD brain is kind of like um, a heat seeking missile for serotonin. So it's looking for feel good things and dopamine. It's like, wait, and then that's not enjoyable. I'm not going to do that. Oh, that's more enjoyable. I'll do that. And so the pressure cooker of deadlines will push an ADHD brain to get something done, but they can't do it when it comes to planning ahead, right? Because we'll get distracted and move on to something else. And it can be really hard for us to stay focused. Um, also, I mean, anxiety can have, uh, I've had patients with anxiety who struggle because they want it to be perfect. And then they're afraid if they even start, it's not going to be perfect. And so they'll put it off and put it off until they just have to do it as best they can and turn it in. And they don't have any time to like really worry about it. So there's all, and that's just a couple off the top of my head. I'm sure there's a zillion others. So I honestly think that we should always take responsibility for procrastinating just because it's uh, due to a mental illness doesn't mean that it's not something that we should be working on. A mental illness isn't an excuse for behavior. It's an explanation. So even if you explain, like you didn't even let me explain, you know, people who, who make mistakes or do something, they didn't even let me explain. That doesn't change what happened. And that doesn't mean that we like get away with it. That just means that we have an explanation. We can make sense of it, but that doesn't mean that we're still not accountable and responsible. And the accountable responsible thing is to see a therapist and to try to find some better ways to manage what we're going through, better ways to deal with our depression. Maybe that means that we need to see a therapist in general or get on some medication. You know, there's other things that we can do to help manage the symptoms that are causing us all this upset, right? And then the overcoming it, First of all, we have to figure out where it's coming from and get some tools for that. So since you said it ties into depression, um, let's just say depression is the thing that we're trying to work to overcome. Can we, uh, I mean, some tools for depression are noticing our self-talk and challenging it with some facts and some bridge statements, meaning if we have a lot of shit talking we're doing, which depression almost always comes along with, where it's like, you're too worthless, you're not good at this, um, you're lazy, you're stupid, whatever. Then we challenge those with things that are like, maybe I'm open to this, maybe that I'm not as lazy or stupid as I think, maybe, you know, and we start building the bridge over into a more positive or more balanced thoughts. So we can stop and focus on that a little bit. Can also do something that is helpful to some of my patients, you know, the three, two, one, do it, where you count down, there's no room for negotiation. You're like, I got to get out of bed. Okay, three, two, one, got to fucking get up, right? It's just boom. There's no, no time to, to wallow and let the thoughts spiral and hold us into bed and keep us more tired and ugh, right. We just three, two, one, do it. And that works honestly for me a lot sometimes when I feel like unmotivated to start a project or do something like, oh, I need to go even record a podcast or something. I could feel really down about it and be frustrated and uh, it's just so much work and I don't even know, do people even like it? Well, I could really spiral, right? But instead it's like, you know what? I got to do it, three, two, one, do it. You don't have any time, don't think about it, do it. 
and that non-thinking just doing can sometimes assist us in those situations. But like I said, you know, therapy, medication can also be very beneficial. And I have a ton of videos about depression, anxiety. If you're, um, I even have some about ADHD too. If you want, if you find yourself in this bucket and you're wanting some more support to overcome those symptoms, that can help. But as always, it can kind of always help for us to be curious about what's what's causing this. So when you're procrastinating, like what's the trigger for it? Is it because you don't enjoy the thing? Is it because you feel super tired and you don't enjoy anything? Is it um, that you work better under pressure? You know, like what is it? Let, let be curious about it because that can tell you more as well. And then that can uh, help us better decide or choose what tools and techniques to use to help us manage it. Does that make sense? I hope so. Also really helps me just as a product, like productivity tips, helps me to keep my to-do lists short, no longer than seven things. And all those seven things have to be able to be completed in one day. Like you can't have one item on your to-do list. That's like clean entire home or something or write book, right? You can't do that in one day. It's more like, you know, organize bathroom closet or, um, you know, write one page, right? Things that you can easily accomplish. We want to put those on the list and we don't want it to be longer than seven things. Also, um, you know, having little rewards for checking the things off can be really helpful. If there is one thing that you do find enjoyable with depression, I'm not sure if it's there, but if it is like for me, if I'm like, oh, if you finish early and you check all these things off, then you can watch an NCIS episode, or then you can order that food that you, from that Italian restaurant that you really like or whatever and go get your nails done. You know, you could set up all sorts of different things or you just get to take a nap. You know, there's any, all sorts of numbers of things that we can do to kind of reward ourselves for getting things done. And that, that helps me a lot. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. And it says, hi, Katie, do you have any tips on how to feel okay about taking antidepressants? So this was perfect because we've kind of been talking about antidepressants off and on throughout all of the questions this week. I was on an SSRI for depression and anxiety last year, but stopped after about four months. I stopped it because even though it was helping, I felt guilty and uncomfortable about being on medicine. It's hard to describe how I feel about it because I don't have a problem with medicine and I support and encourage other people who I know to take, that take medicine. Um, it's funny how our, I'm, I'm giggling because we have all these like beliefs about things that don't apply to other people that only apply to ourselves. And it's, it's just always interesting. Everybody has that. Um, I always get anxious or I always get this anxious feeling, even though I'm not reacting to the medicine, it could be causing a health problem inside of me that I can't detect right now, or that it will show up later in life. It sounds like anxiety. I talked to my doctor about this and he said thoughts like that are part of my anxiety since I'm always worried about my health and that the medication should help take that away. It did help with the physical symptoms of anxiety and panic attacks that I would experience, but the anxious worry that the medicine was affecting my health in ways I could never, or I, or I couldn't tell never went away and was what made me ultimately stop it. I just started my medicine again a few days ago because I know I need to be on it, but I'm afraid that I'll end up stopping it again when it starts working. And I don't want to do that. Do you have any tips to help me keep a positive outlook about being on medicine and get rid of this worry that the medicine could be hurting my health somehow? Thank you. Okay. There's a couple of things. Now there can be a lot of, this isn't what this person is talking about, but there can be a lot of stigma and judgment around taking medication. And the way that I always have fought it or argued back, right? Because when we have these kinds of thoughts or beliefs, we have to kind of argue with other facts. We can't, we can't just be like, but you just need it and it's helping you. Like that's not going to be enough. What can be helpful is to 
you know, um, argue back with the facts about that medicine, right? Like if we have the stigma that like, oh, being on medicine means I'm weak or stupid or whatever, I would have my patients, I'd always argue back and say, you know, well, how were you doing before? Did you feel really smart and amazing then? Was that, you know, let's just be honest, right? If we be honest with each other and we can have a, a conversation about the medication, then that can kind of help us fight back against that stigma or what we associate with taking that medication. Um, also kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier about getting your head above water. It's like, if we can't do anything else to help ourselves, medication is there to, to allow us at least a little breathing room so that we can. And I, I forgot my, I like skipped over my main argument with my patients that I was getting to, um, sorry, get distracted myself. My main argument is that you wouldn't judge anyone for taking medication to help with their blood pressure right? Or would you judge someone for taking medication to get over pneumonia or cancer? Or would you judge anyone for if they had to take allergy pills because they had really, really bad allergies? Just think about it. Be honest with yourself. No judgments. Would we get, would we think that someone's weak or stupid or all the things we tell ourselves about being on medication? Would we think that about, you know, someone taking those medicines? And then I ask you, how is the, the SSRI any different? It's medicine that helps with an issue that we're having that's affecting our physical health as well. And can you, I don't think anybody can argue against the fact that our mental health is so closely tied to our physical health. So to say that like, well, mental health is different is a cop out because it's not because they are inextricably linked. So those are my arguments in other scenarios when it comes to like stigma and what being on a medication could say about me, blah, blah, blah. But in the case of this question where she's asking about, um, you know, thinking that the medicine is going to hurt her health somehow, I would encourage you to, and I don't know if you're a therapist, I always encourage this in my patients. I'm like, do some research, man. SSRIs and medication in general, usually, and I say usually because, you know, if things are like with the vaccine and things like that and not getting into it at all, but things can be like quickly reviewed and quickly researched and put to market to save lives. But when it comes to things like SSRIs and SNRIs, a lot of those medications have A, been around for years and B, have been researched for a shit ton of years. Like most medications have been researched for at least five or six years before they're even up for FDA approval. And then the approval process takes a few years. So we have more data and then it comes out to, to people. And so I'd encourage you to put together your questions about it, about all the worries that you have. Ask your doctor read up on the medication. Sure. There's going to be some warnings, but when you even read a warning, don't take it as face value just because they say, Oh, it might increase your risk of suicidality or whatever those black box warnings are. Why does it say that? Let's dig into that. Google that. Look into Google scholar. How, what's the percentage? It's very small, by the way, most like just do your research so that you don't allow those worry thoughts. You don't, they don't have any evidence to support them. They're just worry thoughts, right? If it's hurting your health somehow, don't you think your doctor would tell you? Like we have to argue back. We can't just allow it to spiral us out so that we don't feel better, so that we end up feeling worse. And I would, you know, I would compare it to that like blood pressure medication. So let's even say like, then I'm, we're going to play it out. This is another CBT tool is uh, play it out till the end. So, okay, best case scenario, you're, this SRI, SSRI that you're on has no side effects. You feel amazing right away and it completely gets rid of your anxiety, okay? Worst case scenario, it doesn't work very well. It causes a shit ton of side effects, ends up hurting your health. 
Hmm. Okay. Now what's the most likely scenario? Be honest with yourself. The most likely scenario is that you might have a couple side effects, but long-term nothing because they've researched it and we know what it's going to do. Your doctor will, you do your physicals, you get your blood checked, everything will be fine. And it'll help your anxiety for the most part. Won't make it go away, but it'll make it more manageable. Okay. Is that something we can live with that, that like most likely scenario? Can we live with that? Okay. Then we live with it. You know, and I'm, I'm giving you a bunch of different ways to kind of combat this anxiety and this uh, overwhelming worry, but it can really help to ask your doctor a shitload of questions, do some research on something, find out how many years it's been, uh, you know, researched, how many people were involved in each of the studies, what did they find when they have these warnings, what does that mean? Like read about it and understand it because medications are usually very, very safe. Sure. There's going to be some medications. Like I know some, especially steroids and I forget what that one, there's one medication Sean had to take once because he had like some nerve pain and it was just a very dirty drug. And even the doctor was like, it has a lot of bad side effects. Don't read up about it. Only take it for these couple of days. Don't take it longer. You know, they tell you doctors are honest. They don't want you to get hurt. So talk to them, ask your questions, do your research so that you can feel okay continuing. Um, and get into therapy if you're not already, because I really think that taking this medication so that we alleviate some of the physical symptoms of your anxiety will hopefully allow you to get your head above water so that you can do some of the behavioral things that will stop that worry as well. Um, and help you better manage that. It's kind of like that. Um, it's like this old song that your brain keeps playing about worrying about that medication hurting you in some way. It just, it wants to go back to it because it thinks it's a real threat. And so we have to kind of prove that it's not a real threat all the while kind of acknowledging like what's coming up for you and using some tools to better manage any of that anxiety. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Let's move on to question number eight. And this question says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I was wondering if as a therapist, what you do if someone brings up an issue in therapy that you have experienced, is it hard or is therapy different? Therapy's different, but I'll tell you why. I'm starting graduate school to be an LCSW. That stands for licensed clinical social worker, if you're curious, in the fall. And I know you've said in the past that it's okay to be going through your own things as a therapist, as long as you're taking care of it. And I know there's always the option to refer out, but I just wondered if because of the nature of therapy, you're able to help people with issues, even if you've experienced them, because therapy is a different kind of relationship. Yes. Forgot to mention for context, I'm asking mainly because I have to fill out forms for school about any populations that I don't want to work with for our field placement. And I don't feel... Um, I don't feel like people with similar situations to me would be difficult, but I wanted to hear your perspective. This is a great question. And so there's different, there's different things. So first of all, yes, you can deal, you can help anyone with any issue as long as you're taking care of your own shit. However, we're human and we're going to have limitations, right? Um, like for instance, I have a, a colleague of mine who was in an abusive relationship in college that she got out of safe and sound. We're okay. But because of that, she cannot work with any kind of domestic violence cases. She has a difficult time upholding boundaries with her patients. She gets too involved and is too easily upset. It's a trigger. And yes, she's still in her own therapy and her life is managed just fine, but she knows that those patients will be better suited with someone else who doesn't struggle. It's not as, it's not as tough of work for her. There's also going to be limitations with things that you just don't feel like you are expert enough or have enough training to do. Like I've talked talk a lot over the years about like how addiction hasn't been a big 
component of my private practice. It's something that I can work on and have, you know, especially in the eating disorder treatment center, I used to take the girls to the AA meetings and, and we'd have meetings and talk about it. And, you know, there's groups and I can do some of it, but it's just not my specialty. And if someone really wants to see someone for that, I would refer them out to a specialist. So there's, there's things to consider like that. But when it comes to things you have personally experienced, they're, they're kind of, uh, let's say two, maybe three routes we can go. So the first, like I said about my friend, she experienced something. It makes it too difficult for her to have healthy therapeutic boundaries because it's just too triggering, even though she's working on her shit. So she just does not see those people and refers them out immediately. Then there's the second, which I've done a few times where you start to see someone just to, and you, you do your best. And then maybe you run into a roadblock. Like when it comes to addiction, I've had that happen where I'm like, this needs a more specialized care. And I, I really don't have the tools past what we've already gone through. We're not getting better. You need, I need to refer you out. I've done that with trauma too. Like I can get you so far. And then, you know, what? I think you need some EMDR or some schema therapy, which I, I don't, I don't specialize in. I don't know that, you know, I don't do that stuff. So we can refer out right away. We can see them and see, you know, as much as we can, how far can we go? And then, you know, there's a component of the fact if we've experienced it ourselves, sometimes that understanding can make us better. Like when I worked at the eating disorder treatment center, a lot of the people that I worked with had had eating disorders in their past. Now they had been recovered for, I want to say they required at least like five years or something before they could work or three years of recovery, something, some, some amount of years. I don't know. Cause it didn't apply to me, but for those people who had it, a lot of the clients that came into the treatment center felt like then they got it. And there's some kind of connection slash extra empathy and support, or maybe tools you can offer if you've already worked through something yourself. And that's, that's kind of the bonus of it. And I believe that that only occurs when we're on the other side of it, meaning like these people have been recovered for a lot of years, but they didn't forget how they thought and the way that their brain worked when it was in eating disorder mode. So they could see things in patients that maybe I would miss making them potentially a better clinician than me in that scenario, right? If you've already been through it, you know things that someone who hasn't been through it can't know, right? You, you just have that extra level of experience and awareness. Now I could go to all the trainings and do all these CEUs and work in treatment centers, but I'm going to be missing that personal component to it. And so I believe that in the in most cases, you are able to manage it and you are able to treat people coming from all backgrounds with all issues. However, in that first example of like my friend, if it's just too upsetting to you, no one says you have to keep treating them. It's actually worse for you to try to continue to treat them. And even in the second scenario, if you come up to a roadblock where you're like, this is as far as I can take you, right? I don't have the key to this door. I have to refer someone else to help you through. You can either add on, have supplemental therapy like EMDR for a period of time, or you can, you know, refer to another person. So in most cases, you can keep seeing them. Those are just my thoughts about it. I feel like it can be difficult if we haven't worked through our stuff, um, if it is the same exact issue. But other than that, I really feel like we can do a lot of good and still are able to help people. But what do you guys think? Let me know in those comments down below. But that's that's from my experience. And I hope that that helps. Let's move on to question number nine. It says, hi, Katie. What advice do you have for adjusting to re-entry of the, um, slash the end of the pandemic. I'm very anxious to go places without wearing a mask at work. We had a meeting with about 80 people and I was the only one that showed up wearing a mask. Wow. That's surprising. I was not comfortable being the only one wearing it, but I was also anxious about not wearing it. 
I am vaccinated, but I'm still very anxious. I continue to wipe down my groceries and watch and wash and sanitize my hands often. I feel like I'm the only one still being cautious. Any advice you can give on this topic would be much appreciated. Thank you for everything. I want to touch on this one because a lot of us are experiencing that. And unfortunately, I don't know why this is how our world is right now, but it's not us versus them. It's not mask wearer versus anti-mask wearer. And people who aren't wearing masks aren't necessarily anti-mask. And I feel like it's just, how are we managing this threat to our life and safety? And how can we all assist each other, right? We all went through this or going through it. Let's just be a little kind to each other. We all have differing needs and differing anxieties around it. I have a lot of viewers and patients who are not ready for this. And even colleagues, I'll be honest, who are not going back to their office because they're still scared. And, and the next question, we'll talk about mask wearing and stuff like that. Um, or I think it's actually the final question, but anyways, my advice is to do it at the pace that feels good for you slowly, but surely. So you went to that meeting with 80 people. I'm giving you a round of applause, clap, 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 five gold stars, because that's a lot of people and old you maybe, in full lockdown would not have gone there, right? I mean, we have to give ourselves credit. We're, I know that some people are able to just jump back in both feet, but others of us like to tippy toe our way in, step, you know, a little toe in the water and then neck, then step in up to our ankles, up to our knees, slowly make our way as we get acclimated. It's okay to do that. Don't let anybody rush you. If people ask, just say, you know, I'm still just kind of getting used to this. this it seems like we we're all closed down and now we're all open up and I'm just taking my time. That is a very responsible and reasonable answer. No one says we have to do exactly as the government tells us. Are we open? Are we closed? I have to act accordingly. I'm going to be honest. Sean and I were, we were in California. Now we're in Texas. Texas, everything is fully open, but we still don't go out to dinner at like packed restaurants um, or do things that maybe make us uncomfortable. Like I haven't attended a workout class or anything here. They don't require masks and it, it, I'm a little anxious myself, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to be angry at someone who doesn't feel that way. We're all in it together. We're all at our own pace, trying to assess what feels okay. I would encourage you to be doing daily body shakes to get that anxious energy out and come up with a phrase that you can say if someone, because I know people are irritable because of last year and this year, and people are still having a tough time. If anybody asks you about, you know, still wearing a mask or not wanting to come to that party or whatever decisions that you make for you, for your own health and safety, I want you to have a phrase that you can say, like the one I just offered earlier, having something you can say, like, you know, just feels like it happened really fast. We're locked down and now we're open up and I'm just, just trying to get used to it, taking my time, you know, cause it, I just feel a little anxious. Whatever phrase you can put together, whatever statement you can make, let's repeat it in our head, have it written down so we can practice so that we have it ready when someone maybe potentially, possibly, probably will ask. Um, and then I, I would just keep in check with, you know, um, how much your anxiety, because we don't, obviously there's the anxiety of like the shift in things and things being open and us still not, it's almost like we ha we're having a trauma response and we're being hyper vigilant. I want you to, to every every month, assess your anxiety level and see if it's getting lower. Like keep a little journal and just pay attention to it. Zero being super comfortable, relaxed, could take a nap. 10 being like panic attack. It sounds like you might be in like an eight maybe right now. And I, I want to see that go down a little as we slowly get more comfortable. Because as we do things, 
hopefully, you know, kind of the way exposure therapy works is as you do things, the anxiety will slowly come down for you because you're like, oh, I guess it's not as scary as I thought it was. I want to see that anxiety level drop a little bit, but that doesn't mean that you have to stop washing. I would always encourage people to wash their hands. World, the world is filthy. If you travel, the world is filthy. You should wash your hands, but you know, maybe you feel more comfortable not wearing a mask. Um, I don't know, doing something else outside or meeting up with one friend or I don't know you know, but this is all up to you at your own pace. I don't want you to feel pressure from anyone to do things at a certain, you know, speed. You get to take your time, but I would hope that that anxiety will kind of come down. I think those full body shakes will work. If you're not seeing a therapist, I might encourage you to check out one on like BetterHelp or Talkspace. I link BetterHelp in all of my descriptions of my videos um, because it's a great online therapy resource. And it's also a lot cheaper for some people. So maybe check that out. Um, cause you're not the only one that's still being cautious. It might just be in your area or in your circle of people that you interact with. Take your time, um, have a statement prepared and do the things that help you feel good until you feel safe, not doing them it's a very weird time. And I've been talking to a lot of people about this lately, and I just want, don't want anyone to feel rushed. And the last thing we need is more arguments or judgments around the decisions we're making about our own health and safety. Everyone has their own right to feel how they want to feel and act the way they want to act. As long as it doesn't affect anybody else and you wearing a mask or washing your hands, that's not affecting anybody else. So they can all just fuck off. You know, we get to do what we need to do. If someone wants to not wear a mask and not wash their hands, throw caution to the wind and do their thing, that's fine too. And that's on them. I know people might argue against this, but I'm just saying that we've been so at odds with each other for so long. And I'm really just, I'm over it. And I'm ready for us to be a little more compassionate, understanding with each other as we we try to navigate this trauma that we just sustained. So be patient, <sighs> breathe. I have some videos about COVID on the channel, uh, one about loneliness, but there's one, the earlier one that I did, I offer some tools for dealing with the anxiety and you know, the shakeouts, one of them connection with people we love is another. Maybe rewatch that video. It was back like in last April or May. Um, check it out do some of those things to help yourself just better manage the anxiety that's coming up right now. It'll get better. I promise. Okay. Let's move on to question number 10 it says, hi, Katie. I wonder what your thought is on seeing more than one therapist at the time for different things. I have a therapist and I've been seeing that I've been seeing for a few months for grief and loss. I lost my dad about a year ago. I'm so sorry. It's so hard. Um, trauma and anxiety slash depression. However, I also suffer from OCD and ARFID. Now ARFID stands for, um, is it, I forget what the A is, but it's restrictive feeding. Hold on, let me look it up. I'm sorry, I should have been prepared. Um, let me see if it'll just pop up and tell me. Yeah, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And I have a video about ARFID on my channel if you wanna learn more. So also suffer from OCD and ARFID. And she suggested that I see someone who is specialized in these areas. I agree. And those are definitely very specialized, you know, things. I don't want to end our therapeutic relationship as I trust her and really enjoy the work we do together related to my trauma and my grief. OCD isn't my only issue and it isn't my most prevalent issue right now either, if that makes sense at all. Is it okay for me to see a separate therapist for ERP, which is exposure, it's exposure therapy, exposure response therapy? and CBT related to OCD, but still see her for general counseling, grief related experiences and trauma and to sign a release, allowing them to communicate with one another. Or is this frowned upon? I have a session with her coming up, but I haven't seen her in two weeks because of the holiday. So 
I can talk about it with her soon. She hasn't suggested that I see someone else instead, but I'm just not sure if that's what she's implying. We are making progress, just not with my OCD, and she isn't trained to treat this. Any advice you have would be appreciated. Okay, let's, um, I'm just checking to make sure that, yeah, ERP being exposure therapy. Okay, just double checking myself, you know, want to make sure. Um, This is not frowned upon at all. I have done this, I, I can't even tell you how many times. Having a a patient see me for a lot of times for me, especially because I'm an eating disorder specialist, I will see people for the eating disorder and then they'll see someone else for other things like uh, could be OCD, could be addiction, could be any number of things. And that's okay. It's not frowned upon at all. The main crux of this is allowing them to talk to one another and signing that release like you're talking about. Because the thing that I always do, and I think most therapists would agree, is that when I am treating a patient and I have other people in their treatment team, which usually it's just a psychiatrist, but often because of eating disorders, it'll be a dietitian or it could be a EMDR specialist or something like that, is talking to them each week or maybe every other week, depending on how often we're seeing them and you know if there's pertinent information needs to be shared but keeping up with them and updating them and them updating me, you know, vice versa. So having those conversations and scheduling that um, is really important and really part of making the treatment the most beneficial for you. So that is, I mean, I think that's completely fine. That's something again, that I do all the time. I know that the one thing I will tell you is that therapists are great at keeping in touch. Psychiatrists, uh, not always so much. Sometimes I'll call them and try to leave messages and I won't get in contact with them for like a month, but sometimes they don't see my patients for like a month or two. So again, my main thoughts are, this is great. I think this is wonderful. I think this is, um, you know, maybe you won't have to see an ERP or CBT based therapist for very long. Sometimes those can be not short term, but shorter term than maybe trauma work. I think that it's very fair to just add them on like an adjunct into your treatment team for a little while, especially if you can afford it. And if, you know, if, that's something that's available to you. Hey, let's get the help. Nothing wrong with it. I deal with it all the time. I would just bring it up with her. Like you said, you'll talk about it with her soon. I'd bring it up and I'm sure she'll say it's fine. Unless she thinks that you should put your effort into that for a bit, then you can always ask if that you find that upsetting, you can always ask like, but can I come back? Because I really feel like with the trauma and the grief, it's been really helpful and I'm making progress and I don't want to lose that. You know, you get to advocate for your own treatment and nobody says you have to, you know, do something you're not ready to do. But I can't imagine her not wanting, like not continuing to see you and not being open to communicating with another therapist about your treatment. We do that all the time. It's just like, it's old hat. So I hope that that helps. But yeah, um, tell her about it. It's fine. Question number 11, our final question says, Hey Katie, what are yours and other therapists thoughts and experiences on wearing face coverings in therapy sessions? Do you think it takes away from you being able to see what the client is thinking and feeling? And how do you work around it? And there was a comment that says, and how do you feel about exemptions? Some people don't accept anxiety exemptions because it's not physical. Okay. I have not returned to my office and obviously now I'm in Texas. I'm not returning to my office. I've done everything virtual. I don't love virtual sessions, but it's better than masks in session. I know that sounds crazy. Um, I, I did not, I mean, now obviously we moved, but first of all, California was not open. Technically I could have still had patients come to my office, but most of my patients were not comfortable and did not want to. By the time the vaccination started rolling out, I was already moving and we were fine doing virtual. We're just continuing until they're, you know, transition to someone else. Um, I don't like masks. 
I don't like that. I can't read people's facial expressions, see what they're thinking and feeling. I also don't like online because I miss a chunk of their body and they could be more fidgety or something. And I can't always tell it's not ideal by any stretch of the imagination right now. But in my, from my experience, um, no, no mask online is better than mask in, in session. And that's just kind of how I feel. And also, um, you know, if, if I felt safe enough, once I felt safe enough, I would have patients come back into my office, but it wouldn't, we wouldn't be wearing masks because then that would be like, we're back into things the way they used to be. And, and those are just my thoughts. Everybody's different. I've had, um, I've had colleagues who go were never had people not coming in. They both wore masks and just did sessions that way. They found that fine and thought that was better than online. I think honestly, in such a strange situation as the pandemic, every therapist and met any mental health or medical professional for that point, uh, from that point has a different take and a different thing that they're doing. But a lot of it, I think, especially in California where I was, a lot of it was driven by the way that our state was handling it. And we, if, for those of you who don't live in California or don't know what was happening and, you know, cause your area was different, we were under lockdown for a long time and everything that was non-essential, like, Again, I probably could have skirted it because it's like health, but they were very strict and things were shut down and it kind of scared people. And I think that's why a lot of my patients were like, I would rather, we'll just keep online, keep doing online. And so that's just what we did. Um, you can meet out in public. I've, I did that for, you know, kind of a goodbye for a couple people because it felt safe for them. And then we didn't wear masks and we were, you know, sitting across a table and if there's a breeze and we felt fine, but to each their own. Um, again, those are just my thoughts. I, it was like, there was no, it didn't really feel like there was any option. And then once there was, I was leaving. And a lot of my patients, you know, because you're going to see someone for issues, a lot of my patients were anxious and that did not feel okay. Um, yeah. So those are my thoughts. I hate, I hate it all. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'll be more positive. Things are getting better. It's going to be okay. And I do believe that, but when it comes to therapy with a mask, I hate it. And when it comes to therapy online, I don't like it either. The only, I, I really think in person without a mask is just the best. And I know people can disagree and that's okay, but those are just my thoughts about it. Um, and I've just been doing online only. Um, and then about exemptions, we have a lot of members of our community who are on the autism spectrum. One in particular, um, I've talked to her a lot about it, trying to get treatment, um, while having that exemption, because if you guys don't know, uh, autistic people can feel a very big sensory overload with things and it can make it really hard for us to then participate and not have a meltdown or, or dissociate or just get maxed out. It's like every, if you don't know, um, a lot of autistic people can feel very overwhelmed by uh, noise and you know, even too much physical touch or too, too much conversation, like just a lot of stimuli can be overwhelming to our nervous system and our brain and they can be like, Ugh, it's too much. And we have to like withdraw for a bit and like recharge. And so masks feel like that. Cause it's like on our face and we feel it and the breathing can feel, you know, we all feel uncomfortable with them to some extent and that can be overwhelming. So I am fine with exemptions. Um, again, I haven't been in my office, so I'm trying to think of how I would have felt if I was in my office and one of my patients, I'd probably just um, ask them if they had been tested recently and, and how many people they're seeing and just trust them because exemptions need to be there for a reason. And people have had a lot of issues, you know, they get yelled at when it's like, I don't know what they're supposed to do. I know our local grocery stores in Santa Monica, where Sean and I used to live, 
they had little signs outside that they were like, if you can't wear a mask for any reason, you know, give us your list, let us know what you need and we'll shop for you. I thought that was a lovely, you know, way to, to mitigate that issue because I know also through the way that things have gone this last year, a lot of companies have like company wide policies. Like even here in Texas, even though there's no mask mandate in the state, like at the HEB, our local grocery store, it still says you have to wear a mask. Now, not everybody does, but no one's yelling at them either. Again, going back to what I said a couple of questions ago, I really just am tired of people being so angry with each other. Let's show a little compassion. People have issues like my patients who have panic attacks cannot wear masks and they they deserve an exemption. My autistic people in my community, they need that exemption. Um, even if my papa was still alive, he had COPD. He had enough trouble breathing on the regular. I can't imagine him trying to wear a mask. That would have been just... I mean, with his oxygen, like, I don't know. How does that work? How do you put that? I don't know. I'm sure they'd figure it out, but I'm just saying that like, we don't know other people's situations. And so I always come to, I try my best to always come to interactions with other humans with as much compassion and patience as I can muster. And I think, you know, we could all benefit from some more of that. And so I, I am fine with exemptions. I think people need to be a little bit more understanding because they even give you a little lanyard that you wear. Um, and I honestly think that in some ways, especially in California, there was no communication about that. And I wish while they were doing all those like things on the news about COVID and the death, they also said, hey, some people in our world cannot manage this and will have exemptions. And the lanyard looks like this, like, or look out for that. Or I don't know, they should have told people because I'd heard from a lot of you about, you know, arguments and issues and just kind of scary situations that you've had to go through. And I'm sorry that you had to do that. I'm sorry people aren't more understanding. You know, we all have things that we're dealing with and sometimes wearing a mask is just not, it's not something we can do. Um, so yes, those are my thoughts about that. I hope that was interesting. I hope you guys found that helpful. These are great questions. And as things open up and as our world goes back to, you know, quote unquote normal, whatever that might look like, um, I'm happy to answer questions about it. I just want you all to know that I come from, like I come at that issue with just, hopefully you feel that just a lot of love and compassion for people because we've all been through a trauma this year. And it's just scary and nobody knows what to think or feel and it can feel really overwhelming. There's lots of messages we're receiving and hopefully we're all just trying our best to, to manage it. So if you have more questions about that, I'm happy to answer them. Um, but I think these were as always wonderful questions. And if you're new, welcome. Um, feel free to jump over to the opinions that don't matter YouTube page. Like I said at the beginning in the community tab and ask your questions. I answer them on Sundays. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful week. Take care of yourself. Make some time for that breath in. And I will see you all next time. Bye. Wanted to know